Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hello, nerds, and welcome to the Engadget Podcast. My name is Terrence O'Brien. Joining me this week to my right, Mona Wawani. Welcome. Thank you. I'm so excited to have you here. I'm not. I know. I can see that. In your face, I can see the dread. I've been trying to get you to come on the podcast for many, many weeks now. I know. Finally caved and agreed. It feels good so far for so the first far. two seconds. It's a little yeah. chilly in here, but yeah. it is. Yeah. You've got your, your, your jean jacket. Yeah. So you're okay. I'm dressed for it. Yeah. Yeah. And that other voice is a familiar one Dana Wallman, managing editor. Dana Puppet Editor. Dana Puppet Editor. <laughs> I just wanted to say puppet. I'm you just sorry. wanted to say puppet. Yeah. Hi. Hi, guys. <laughs> Whose puppet are you? Um, oh, I don't know. I didn't think that far. <laughs> <laughs> we'll figure it out. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll figure it out. We'll assign someone to be your puppet master. Okay. All right. Uh, it will not be me, just to be clear, because I don't have any interest in even being my own puppet master. Nonetheless, somebody else's. He's weird. He I am what? I'm just letting you know that it won't be me. Somebody else. Good to know. Yes. Um, can we make you... No, no. There's, there's just too many ways this can go terrible. Let's move on to Flame Wars, which is how we start every week. Mona, you are new here, mm-hmm. so allow me to explain the rules. Uh, we are going to debate the biggest topics of the week, uh, and by we, I mean you and Dana. Mm-hmm. You'll get 20 seconds to make your op- opening statements. I will allow a brief time for rebuttal, at which point I will declare a winner. Uh, we are keeping score at the end of the season, which will end at CES. The person with the best winning percentage will get something not that nice, and the person with the losing per- win- worst winning percentage will probably have to do something embarrassing on stage. Sounds cool. Um, so you might want to make sure that you don't lose all three <laughs> of these arguments today, um, because I will drag you on stage. And I know. I'm kind of yeah. dreading that. Are you? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, let's start with something that's, uh, started making the rounds a little bit earlier this week as we are gearing up for yet another Apple event because they seemingly are never ending. And that is that, uh, there is rumors floating around that Apple is going to start pushing towards having e-ink keyboards on their MacBooks. Um... And this is not next year, not for the newest models, but they're pushing in that direction, hopefully by 2018. Uh, Dana, your 20 seconds starts now. Okay, um, this is an intellectual exercise, does not actually um, reflect the views of the author. But, um, yes, sure, e-ink on (laughs) MacBooks. Um, Apple would be taking a concept that didn't even invent itself, the Sonder um, e-ink keyboard. So, um, it would not be making its own mistakes in a first-generation product. 
You were not excited to have to make that argument. No. No. <laughs> that one was rough. It, does, it doesn't It does bode well for your chances. I'm just no. going to throw that out there. I know. Um, Mona, your incredibly easy task of rebutting that begins <laughs> now. I actually watched the Saunders demo video, did you? I'm not sure. But when I watched it, I actually wasn't impressed at all because the transitions between the changes that they're sort of recommending just took forever. And as a writer, I'm just not sure I want that kind of workflow change in my everyday life. So, no, I do not need it. She came in under time. She's like an old pro at this. That's like yeah. D- Devendra-like almost. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's a compliment. I'll take it. Um, well, so, Dana, what is the practical benefits of having an e-ink keyboard, though? That it would be potentially context-aware and that um, it would be easier to um, use different alphabets. Um, but really, you can already use different alphabets. I'm, I'm, I'm going yes, I'm exactly to defect and also um, <laughs> join Team Mona on this one. Um, the only thing I can say, and this really isn't answering the question at hand, is that any updates to the Macs, MacBooks at this point would be welcome even if they miss the mark it would nice to be it would be nice to know that um, apple is iterating and innovating on the line even if it makes some mistakes um, but surely at this event next week we'll get um, at the very least newer processors and things that um, serve a practical use even if they're not exciting when was the last time they were updated years ago i mean definitely more than one year we're talking multiple years ago. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Um, Mona, since she's just uh, conceded defeat, do you have any additional things you'd like to say? I mean, for me, honestly, I get the idea of e-ink, and I think it looks great, and it feels great. It's easier on the eyes, but I kind of feel like it's a step back. We're mm-hmm. going through super high-res and bright with everything else, but for the keyboard, we're like going a step back. I kind of And for 2018, it. right? Yeah. It just doesn't make it's sense It's like we'll have self-driving cars on the roads and yeah. e-ink and computers. E-ink yeah. <laughs> no. Yeah, it doesn't really seem to make a whole lot of sense. I'm going to I'm going to agree with you guys on that. But it might not be one. true. Yeah, it might not. Yeah. Be. Um, I think I'm in denial about this rumor. I don't want it to be true. No. No. The 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 more believable rumor that was making the rounds was something about uh them doing away with USB ports, I believe, right? Um You mean full-size ones? Yeah. I mean, they would. Yeah, that that one, which is why we're not going to debate that, because it seems like a thing they'll do, and there's just no point in arguing about it. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like an Apple thing to do. Yeah. yeah. Pretty soon, they'll get rid of, I don't know, screens and power ports and everything <laughs> else. Every other thing that makes a computer a computer, they'll just do away with. Yeah. Um, let's move on to Amazon, though. Uh, rumors started circulating that they're getting... They're looking to get into the ISP business in Europe. Um, there, it's a little bit easier for companies to kind of dip their toes in the water because there aren't the same uh, – well, there are, I shouldn't say there aren't the same regulations. Their regulations are actually in some ways more strict. Uh, basically, they're looking to operate like an MVNO where they buy bandwidth from other companies and serve Amazon Internet over that uh, as part of a prime subscription bundle. Um, we started with you last time, Dana. Mona, your 20 seconds starts now. So I actually don't think it's going to be a good move on Amazon's part. I think they'll get to definitely boost the Prime Video service, and that's probably why they're going to do this. But I think it's like a super complicated and expensive experiment to take on, which Amazon has zero experience with. So I don't see how it's going to be a good move. Again, very Davindra-like. Yeah. Um, Dana... 
what benefits does this have for either Amazon or its con- customers? So one benefit for consumers potentially is that if Amazon's controlling both the bandwidth and the content, it can no longer throw a third-party ISP under the bus if um, it doesn't deliver speed sufficient for video streaming, which is what you'll see in the U.S. You see the likes of Netflix pointing at, let's say, Comcast or some other big ISP and saying, well, let them deal with it. (laughs) Yeah, I agree. I I agree with that, but I think it's definitely... um that's a benefit. But at the same time, kind of to bundle the video service and be the internet provider, to me, that's a little bit dicey. Like, how do you get away with that? That wouldn't fly, certainly, here in the U.S. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Well, quick question about the whole not being able to throw a third party under the bus. Um, So I think that makes some sense to me. But when you start digging a little bit, I don't know if that argument necessarily holds up because they are ba- basically just leasing bandwidth from another company. Mm. Um, so it's not like Amazon is building their own pipes. Their name would be attached to it. I don't know if it would be effective, but they could still throw whoever it is that they're leasing that bandwidth from under the bus. Like if it was, I don't know the names of <laughs> providers in Europe or the UK. Uh does Sky provide internet or Vodafone? Those I'm sound like sure. things, right? <laughs> um, I don't know. Where's a European when you need one? Uh, not, on, <laughs> not on this podcast, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, but it, at least that's my understanding is that it would operate much like an MVNO in the U.S. Like uh, Google's Fi is not Google's network. It's Google paying for space on Sprint and I want to say T-Mobile, right? I could be wrong about that, but I know it's definitely Sprint. And so if things go wrong, Google's the name on the bill maybe, but really at fault it's Sprint for Mm. their job to maintain the network. Yeah, I didn't didn't actually think of it that way. Although it would still be Amazon handling customer service complaints about its potentially crappy network. Yes. So they have some incentive to stand by it and feel accountable. Oh, yeah. Um, I think... Um, at the end of the day, customers probably aren't going to make the distinction. Um, The customers are probably going to be like, no, it's Amazon's internet service that sucks, not whoever it is that actually owns the pipes. Um, Trying to think if there is any other sort of outstanding questions around this. I mean, this is, is this is one of these other ones. um, The tricky thing is, is that we, none of us are um, scholars about, um, European net neutrality no laws. Mm. So I mean that yeah, I mean what you're saying about it being uh, raising alarms. It raises alarms for us as Americans. Yeah. I don't actually know very much about uh, European net neutrality law, um, and it's probably going to vary somewhat country to country. I assume. Yeah. Uh, and I wonder if that's why it's easier for them to experiment with this in Europe, right? There's got to be, I don't know. There's got to be some reason why they're surely doing. Amazon would still have to provide. Um, allow um, for any other service on its network. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I... Well, especially I, if it is an MVNO. Then. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Amazon likes to experiment, though, and they've been doing that a lot recently, but their track record is a little spotty, right? I mean, yes, no. Um, experimenting in... Well, I mean, they like to dip their toes in things that they don't have a ton of experience in. Building phones. Oh, right. Mm-hmm. Drone delivery. tablets. Um, yeah. And even, I guess, to a lesser extent, and we'll see how well this plays out, uh, with the Echo and Alexa, 
Amazon has always been about trying to build this ecosystem, and this seems like a natural extension of that. Um, but I don't know how much they've succeeded at the other parts of it, which would give me pause about buying into an Amazon ISP. No? Um, yeah, although that decision is at least more reversible than some, if you didn't like it. It's true. You yeah. can always just back out of a contract. Hopefully it's easier than canceling a Comcast plan. Fingers crossed. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm going to give this one to Mona. Okay. I, so you, at this point, as long as you don't come back on the show, by the way, <laughs> you're pretty much guaranteed not to be the, the last place person. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. So uh, I won't come back then. Yeah. <laughs> spend, the, spend the next couple of months just avoiding me. Basically. Um, all right. So here's, here's let's, let's move on to our last topic for Flame Wars. And this is a little bit of a controversial one, a little bit of a dicey one. Mm-hmm. Um, Julian Assange and WikiLeaks have been accused of basically acting as an extension of the Russian government and trying to meddle in uh, the U.S. election. Um, Barring all of that, Ecuador shut off his internet access temporarily and is now restricting his communications basically as a way to keep him from doing that, saying that Ecuador has no interest in being part of interfering with American elections. So my question to you is, is Ecuador right to go out of its way to restrict the communications of a single person who is not facing criminal charges in that country? And is that effective in keeping him uh, from meddling in the U.S. election? Dana, your turn first. Definitely. I, I, I'm going to just come out and say this is not part of my argument, but I really loathe Julian Assange on multiple levels. <laughs> and so I don't know if, if per se he is cooperating with the Russian government. Who knows what contact he actually does indeed have with them. But he is meddling with the election, and I think that needed to stop. And so I am fully in support of what Ecuador did there. Came in right under the buzzer. Yeah. But I wanted to hit it anyway. Mm-hmm. It's, it's my favorite thing on the podcast, as I, know. I repeatedly say. Uh, Mona, your rebuttal. Um, I think if you specifically think about the leaks, um, and if you think about why they published it, is it for the greater good of the public? Um, I think it was. Um, And I think that um, people have the right to kind of read that and make a decision for themselves. Um, It also feels a little strange to me that this is the time that they chose to step in and shut it down, when why didn't they do it before? Dana, do you have any rebuttals? I would feel more sympathetic to the the idea of the public good if Julian Assange himself were more of a careful, responsible curator of information. Um, even, and I think this is where he differs, let's say, from Edward Snowden and his mm-hmm. media partners. Um, even Edward Snowden himself, the um, leaker of um, all that that treasure trove of information, um, was in favor of some measure of restraint, um, right. vetting of what make, gets made public and what. Um, doesn't. His media partners have been very careful. Um, Julian Assange is just more in favor of an information dump. I think he's less careful, less responsible, and I don't consider him a journalist. And I think that's really at at the core of my feelings for him uh, and about him. So uh, putting aside whether or not Julian Assange is a good person, um, I don't think any three of us are going to argue that he is. Um, 
whether or not you think what he does as a member of WikiLeaks is no, I'm not even it. getting into what a misogynist and anti-Semite I think he is, but yeah. I just don't think what he's doing and has done is responsible. Yeah, I, I, I don't think many people would say that he does things with good intentions as a general rule. Uh, but here's a bigger question, and I want to put this to you, Mona, which is, you know, Ecuador turned off his personal access to the internet and restricted his communications personally um, in order to stop him from interfering in the American election. But it didn't stop WikiLeaks. And really all it kind of did, it seems, was like draw more attention. So is this effective or is it counterproductive? I think it's definitely counterproductive. I think... Um, even when it was announced, WikiLeaks like immediately tweeted saying they had contingency plans in place, and they've actually dumped like some four or five thousand emails, I believe, ever since. Um, that's a huge number. So I don't think it's actually going to stop um, the damage um, or stop WikiLeaks from interfering with the election. So I'm not sure that um, this was the right move in sort of putting. Does that mean Ecuador shouldn't have attempted anything? I don't think they should have to be honest. Um, I completely get it. Like, I get that he's not a journalist and it shouldn't be up to him. But at the same time, is it up to the government? To, I also don't kind of get their um, sort of moral stand on this. They're like, oh, we don't want to interfere or kind of meddle with the international affairs, which is fine. But this isn't the only instance where he sort of leaks something about a different country, right? Like, why didn't you come in earlier? So for me, it's much more of like a political play as opposed to like a moral stand that the government's taking. So... Dana? It probably is more of a political play, but one I am grateful for. So That's you do, fair. do you think it is do you think it is uh, an effective way, even if not to deter Assange or prevent him from meddling in the US election, but from it for it was it effective in sending a message in some way to people who might be considering the same thing? Considering um, doing what? Considering leaking additional documents, considering trying to interfere in the American uh, electoral process, trying to uh, influence... I guess it's interesting that you sort of lump those together because I um, have a lot more respect for the actual leaker, which is in this case Chelsea Manning, than I do the um, publisher of the information. Hmm. Um, And so I I don't think Chelsea Manning is, is an interferer with elections. Well, well, and well, I don't think that was ever the intent. Um, so yeah, you sort of lumped all those together. I don't feel the same about leaking versus um, interfering with elections. Okay, so let's specifically take the idea of um, leaking things in a controlled way in the way that the Chelsea Manning stuff was done and the way the Snowden stuff was done and look at pure data dumps and think of it in that way. Um, Because I think there is a distinct difference between what WikiLeaks did with the diplomatic cables and what Snowden did with all the NSA documents and what we got with Podesta's emails, which was unredacted, um, unedited, Mm -hmm. just literally a dump of somebody's personal communications without uh, thought about the impact and I don't know if it really sends a message um, to anyone else and in a way that's okay for me I think it at least sends a message to um, 
Assange, that you cannot just hole up and evade charges in this house and expect the same um, um, luxuries that you would if you were a law-abiding person not hiding out in an embassy in a foreign country. Do you think it is effective in that? Do you think that that he did get that message? I think he, I mean, I think he, um, what does it mean to get the message? Like, would he not do it going forward? I'm sure he would, but like, I think at my core, what I'm saying is, and I'm gonna get a lot of hate mail for this, is <laughs> I am in favor, is it a dick move toward Assange? Is it spiteful? Yeah. Okay, sure, great. Um, I don't like Assange (laughs) I am pro anything um, like that yeah yeah Um, I don't think you need to read too much into what I'm saying yeah you really don't (laughs) I don't know who to declare a winner on this one I'm gonna go with a tie which I don't think I've done before ooh that's new speaking of of political play versus a, a moral play well, well, here's what I'm going to say is I think you, you, Dana, make very good points, and I tend to agree with you that um, Julian Assange is a garbage human with no good intentions, and disconnecting him from the world is a good move. Who we should not feel bad for. No, in theory. But I also think Mona's right in that cutting him off is not effective and is, in fact, very counterproductive in that it only raises his... Um, Yo, why am I blanking on the word I'm looking for? This is I make a great podcast host, guys. I'm the <laughs> best. Um, yeah, I mean it just it just kind of raises his, his image amongst people. People look at him as being this persecuted, you know, figure for trying to right. fight for radical transparency. Um, nobody who already who is tends to agree with Assange in general is looking at this and saying to themselves. You know what? Ecuador was right. Mm. They made the right move. It's just going to get him more uh, sympathetic coverage from the intercept. Um, so we end the day. Mona wins two. Woohoo! Dana and Mona get a tie, which I'm just going to give you both a win for that one. Okay. I like that. If that seems fair. Yeah. Although that means that you're, I guess I have to give you both a win and a loss for that. All right, we'll do it that way. Because if I give you a win and no loss, that means you have to come on stage for CES again. <laughs> I like that you're going out of your way to keep me off stage. I like that. We well, should stick with that. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm trying to help you out. I'm looking out for you. I like that. Doing my thinking emoji face here. <laughs> um, but it is now time to move on to open source where we sort of dig into what goes into writing a story. And this is the whole reason I've been trying to get you on mm-hmm. for weeks now, mm-hmm. Mona, is... You've spent, God, I don't even know how much time at this point. Months and months and months. You went skydiving for this story. Yeah, yeah. I did. Uh, which I want to hear about a little <laughs> bit later. Um, so you spent months and months now building this whole story uh, around the Cybathlon uh, in this multi-part video series we've published called Superhumans. There's a whole bunch of written articles to go along with it. The last installment of that is up today. Goes up today. Mm-hmm. Well, it's on the site. Today, we are shooting this on a Thursday. Yeah. So by the time the people at home are watching or listening to this, it will have gone up yesterday. Yep. Uh, and you should watch all of them and read all of them. Uh, they are so, so good. Uh, but let's start with a really basic thing. Mona, what is the Cybathlon? 
Okay. Um, so it's actually the world's first sporting event that's sort of dedicated to people with disabilities um, who use kind of really experimental robotic technologies to sort of enhance their bodies and sort of get around everyday lives. Um, and I know that a lot of people initially sort of confused it with the Paralympics because they're like, hey, that's where a lot of the similar stuff happens. But the difference basically is that the Paralympics is for passive technologies. But the Cybathlon is actually sort of trying to push innovation. So they wanted to see what exists out there. So they sort of looped in a bunch of research universities, um, sort of research groups from universities, a lot of big corporates that already make and sell um, prosthetics and exoskeletons. And they kind of brought all of those in, and they're all powered technologies. So they rely heavily on, like, really sort of cutting-edge sensors and computers. Um, so that was basically the biggest difference, um, because this actually wouldn't be allowed in any other global contest as of now. So they needed their own, and they built it. Um, and it was organized by ETH Zurich, which is one of the biggest um, technical universities in Europe. Okay. Uh, so what are, some of the thi- what are some of the competitions that the, the athletes would do? So they actually had, um, they chose six disciplines. Um, there was leg prosthetics, arm prosthetics, exoskeleton rays. There was powered wheelchairs, um, which is obviously very different from the wheelchairs we regularly sort of see on the streets. Um, these were sort of prototypes to climb steps. Um, then there was also bike race, which was absolutely fascinating to watch. It was for people with complete paralysis, but they basically used sensors and implants, which kind of synced their bodies with the recumbent bikes in a way that they could actually pedal and race around the tracks. Um, and another one, the sixth one, was the brain-computer interface. This was actually kind of mind-boggling because I saw it at the event, and it was like a bunch of people sort of sitting motionless in their wheelchairs and staring at their screens, and they had a lot of sort of sensors um, on a cap on their heads. And they were actually moving this avatar in a game just purely by the power of their thoughts. Um, So this is sort of a novel thing that they're experimenting with, and they had a discipline dedicated to that. Um, And so what... What are the actual competitions they're trying to do with, like, the prosthetic ar- leg prosthetics and the arm prosthetics? They're they just, like, foot races or...? No, I think the whole, the whole point of them doing this event was to sort of see how people get by in everyday lives. So the task was sort of built around that. Um, for, for example, people with an arm prosthetic had to sort of go over to a breakfast table and sort of open a jar because that's one of the hardest things to do with a prosthetic arm. Or um, people with a leg prosthetic had to go over different services and balance on that. So it was all laid out in a way that you could sort of see how these technologies perform every day for these people and how they should get better. So I actually really like that. So um, when we were in sort of the pre-production stage of this whole project, there were dozens of teams that you could have possibly interview. That was one of the trickier aspects, at least that I recall, was even deciding which of these many teams you wanted to focus on. Yeah, there were about 74 teams that I was sort of um, looking through and trying to find the right stories. Um, But I think in the end, I mean, not to say that all of them weren't interesting. There were a lot of interesting technologies being built, but I kind of had to choose um, based on the ones that were either most experimental or most established. Because I also wanted to contrast that because they're bringing that out in the event, right? They're pitting these sort of uh, bootstrapped research labs with these big corpus that have huge resources. So it was interesting to sort of contrast that and see how a small team makes it work and how a big corpus sort of builds something new for it, which is why I sort of went with Team Cleveland. Um, they represented America 
in the bike race. And they were the only team in the bike race discipline that actually had surgically implanted sensors. Everyone else had superficial ones on the skin. And they actually won the race because I believe the because of the way it was implanted, the technology, the way it communicates with the machine and the bike, I mean, you can't sort of compare it to what's already superficial on the skin because it directly stimulates the muscles. So there was like a lot of interesting things to sort of work with. But yeah, I guess that was my reasoning for picking the teams that we did. And how many teams did we end up following in total? We followed four pilots. Um, we went to Iceland to sort of um, feature one of the biggest uh, leg prosthetic makers called Osser. We followed a German pilot, um, Andre van Rishon, um, who wore the exoskeleton suit from Rewalk. We did Team Cleveland, and we also did... Um, this incredible um, skydiver. She's known as the one-handed skydiver in Europe. Um, she was representing Touch Bionics with the arm prosthetic. So that takes us to you <laughs> jumping out of a plane for work. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> I can't believe I did that. But I think I sneakily always wanted to do it. So this was like my um, opportunity because she was, it was, so we actually shot this episode with her at the German National Skydiving Contest, which was such an incredible experience because it's a world, it's a, it's a totally different world from what like you can even imagine. They should make a movie about this. Um, there's like hundreds of people just like jumping out of the sky. Every time you look up, there's like someone falling from a different direction. It's, it's actually beautiful to watch. And it feels so normal when you're there. You're like, oh, there's like so many people just falling. Uh, what does that feel like? And, and our subject herself was like such an enthusiastic skydiver. that She kind of talked me into it. So, yeah, I hopped on a plane with her and jumped out of a plane. So you weren't, like, interviewing her as you were falling through the air, right? <laughs> that was the plan, but it didn't quite work out like that. <laughs> a little no. too loud while you're falling? Basically, yeah. Uh, and, and, and you t- took uh, one of the other members of our team with you too, right? Uh, well, I wanted to. Um, a cinematographer, Shivani. Um, who is hiding behind the camera <laughs> for those who are watching yep, at home. Um, she kind of got out of it the first day, um, but she did. Uh, we did try to put her on the plane the next day, and she got all suited up, and she was ready to hop on the plane when there was a skydiving accident. And a girl basically fell to the tarmac and broke a lot of bones. Oof. So they canceled the plane rides, and yeah, I think it was wise to not send her on the plane after that. Uh, that wasn't she, fun. How did she get out of it the first time? Oh, because she had to shoot the landing. Oh. <laughs> so it was a logistical issue. Or, Sneaky. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's pretty sneaky. <laughs> she conveniently decided to shoot from the ground. <laughs> uh, so how did you like skydiving, by the way? This is, this is completely off yeah, topic, but I'm um, interested. I loved it, uh, but I don't think I'll do it again. No? No. It's one of those things that you do, at least for me, I did it once. Um, it, it was super scary. But honestly, it was different from what I'd imagined. Like, you know how people say, feel like a bird. No, you don't. It's pretty freaking scary up there. You're free falling. Um, I did a tandem jump, so I had another skydiver with me. So, no, um, I didn't feel like a bird. So, no. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I'm going to go back up there. No. I'm Dana, done. would you jump out of a plane? In my fantasies, but any time, the, the few times I've, I've been offered to go along, I've always turned it down. I don't know if I'll ever actually do it. Yeah. I think everyone should do it once, to be honest. It's um, quite an experience. I'm getting, like, heart palpitations just thinking <laughs> I don't about even it right like <laughs> I don't even like roller coaster drops, so I probably wouldn't uh, yeah. enjoy mm, this. Maybe not. <laughs> That's where I'm at. Yeah. I'm a wuss. Um, yeah, I, w- I won't get on a roller coaster. My wife has been trying to get me to go jump out of a plane with her for a couple of years now. Yeah. Uh, after talking to you and Shivani about your experience with it, um, 
I think that was kind of the nail in the coffin that I'm not doing it. It's just <laughs> nail in the coffin. Happen. Yeah. Oh, God, that was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> she lived, though, right? Yeah, she okay. did. I recently followed up on that. And okay. Oh, that's nice of you. Okay. Good. Yeah. Good. I feel, I feel slightly less terrible about my, <laughs> my choice of uh, metaphor there. Um, <laughs> so other than skydiving, what were some of the other highlights for you? I think the highlights were... For an event that was making its debut, I think it was incredibly well organized. Um, they had so much that could go wrong with it um, in terms of, you know, you're handling a lot of over 70, 75 people with disabilities and they come with a lot of medical teams and stuff. They're handling a lot of technology and experimental technology, which they didn't really know if it was going to work. So it's it was a lot of work and I was really impressed with the way they pulled it off. I think also uh, just the reaction from the crowd, it was incredible to watch. They were just so into it. Um, it was a really gripping event too because there were a lot of disappointments, of course, because a lot of pilots sort of, you know, the technology failed or they couldn't make it over the obstacles, but just the energy of the crowd and every time they were cheering equally for someone who won and someone who stumbled. So it was just like a whole sort of great sense of community there as well, which I think is what they were trying to get at and yeah. they kind of achieved. So that was nice. So what was sort of the presentation like? Because um, you say that, that they're there's the crowd that's really into it and they're cheering and it's this very gripping event. Um, and not that I don't doubt you, that I doubt you, but in my head, it's hard to imagine how a competition that involves opening a jar can be like really gripping and get a crowd riled up. Um, because it was all timed and they're going head to head, um, there's like four tracks laid out in the middle. So there's always four pilots racing each other. So there's that sort of thing to watch where one person gets ahead, the other doesn't. Um, and also it's timed, so you know they have to complete it within a certain stipulated time. So that makes it exciting because they can't exactly take an hour to open it. It has to be a lot quicker than they would actually probably take in their everyday life. So it's it's a timed event. It's it's a proper sporting event. Mm. Yeah. Was it like a big production? Was there like people doing announcements and all that oh, stuff? Oh yeah, this was huge. It was um, televised by the Swiss national television. There were huge camera crews. There were commentators. Um, there were over a thousand volunteers who were just sort of helping out with this. It was it was a massive production, and they plan to bring it back like four years from now, make it a running thing, S similar to the Olympics. Yeah, and they kind of timed that way too. That it's always going to be Olympics, Paralympics, and then the Cybathlons. It's going to be like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh man, I'm so excited to watch the last episode. Yeah, um, it turned out pretty great. I'm happy with it. Good. I'm, I like when people like what they do. That like yeah. makes me super happy, and I think <laughs> it comes through uh, in in the piece. Um, we will obviously have links to all of that stuff mm -hmm. um, in the description, in the post, or whatever. Um, you have to go read it. You have to go watch it. Uh, it's just really excellent. It's w one of the things uh, I th I'm most proud of that we've done, mm -hmm. honestly, as a site. Thank you. Me too. Um, Dana, do you have any last thoughts or questions? Um, just that people should um, look for more of that from us. That was our first ever documentary series, um, but not our last mm -hmm. it's part of our uh engadget r&d labs yeah who knows what will or yeah. you will um <laughs> dive into sorry die i didn't know no pun intended yeah, what you will delve into, into next time <laughs> <laughs> nothing makes me happier than dana making puns because i hate puns you do no puns. um do you have your next thing all queued up at this point you're, you're, you i'm working on stuff? it i have a bunch it? of ideas okay. yeah 
we'll 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 talk we'll talk later. Yeah. <laughs> wanna, don't want to give away everything. Um, so yes, definitely go read and watch that stuff. It, it's super super excellent. Um, but now it is time to move on to group chat and really dig deep on a certain topic. And I think this week is something that Mona, uh, I think you'll have a lot to say about. This is up your alley. Right up your alley. Um, and that is talking about VR and it's sort of used to create a, a sense of empathy and sort of the impetus for this conversation, uh, is an article written by one of our editors over in the UK, Aaron, he talks about this game called The Circle. Dana, do you want to tell us a little bit about this? Yeah, so it's it's a game that um, I don't believe is out yet. Right now it's only being demoed at various gaming shows. Um, but Aaron got to play um, a few minutes of it, and it puts you in the first in the uh, in the position of a transgender person who is wheelchair bound after um, being attacked in a hate crime. And um, it is a VR game, and it um, uh, well, we'll delve into this obviously, but it it, um, it definitely helped Aaron um, build not just not just sympathy, because I think he already sympathized, but I think it, it did effectively put him in this the the shoes of this um, fictional person. Yeah. Um. And so I guess, one, of the, one of the bigger questions, I guess, you know, there's plenty of games and stuff that aim to put you in the shoes of another person. They can create uh, a sense of empathy or connection mm-hmm. with characters. Um, but Mona, VR is very unique in that way and can be used to create a much more powerful connection with characters, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's... I think for the longest time, VR has been talked about in the context of gaming, and that's great, and that's what sort of kicked it off and brought it mainstream. But I think one of the biggest um, benefits of VR, I think, is this idea, not just idea, but the actual feeling of empathy. When you strap on a headset and sort of instantly get transported to, you know, someone's life or a certain situation, I think that's incredibly powerful. And we've never seen anything anything else like it. Um, I think it makes... From a journalistic point of view, I think it makes news more hard-hitting. Everything, you know, everything right now, you just sort of get drowned and things feel so far removed from where you are. But when you're in VR and watching a journalistic story, I think it instantly puts everything in perspective and makes you feel things that you don't feel from watching it on TV. Um, so, yeah, I think it's one of the most important things about VR. And I'm glad that a lot of people are actually using it for that now. And I, th- I think that's one of the first places that... Uh started seeing a lot of people talking about VR and its ability to create em- empathy was very much in these sort of news-focused things, mm-hmm. right? Uh, New York Times and others have used it in that way? Yeah. Um, I think New York Times by far does a phenomenal job. Some of the um, VR journalistic pieces are really, really interesting to watch. Um, but also the UN, they do such a phenomenal job. And they actually recently launched a VR app just sort of dedicated to the VR experiences they're building around the world. Um, and I think UN being the UN, they have such incredible access to people that they bring really powerful stories forward. Um, but I think what I really like about what the UN's doing with it in particular is that sure you feel certain things when you watch something, right? And even Aaron's piece, I was reading it this morning, it's incredibly powerful. I was so moved when I was reading that. But for me, what do you do when you feel that? 
Like, what do you do with that empathy? Do you just sort of take off the headset, get back to your normal life? And that's basically what you do. But the UN's sort of introducing this idea of taking action while you're in that experience. So in the new app, they have these experiences, and they've actually tacked on a take action button. So you can actually click on that, and it instantly takes you to maybe donate your donate money, donate your time, volunteer, whatever the options might be for each social cause that they're bringing forward. And they're also now bringing it to the streets in a way. So they have this initiative in Canada where they're sort of doing home screenings for VR because obviously the refugee sort of situation's a lot more real there than, say, in the States. Um, so they're sort of trying to make people understand the refugee situation a lot better through VR, which I think is interesting. Mm-hmm. And it, it kind of brings in this idea of grassroots efforts, which haven't been done before. Um. Yeah, and the New York Times and the United Nations have done, I, I think, really good and interesting work. But there is, I, there, there, there's something different about this circle and this sort of hmm. gaming part of it. You know, the right. Um, the use of VR here, I think, um, was really interesting. Um, there were things Aaron pointed out that I don't think I had heard of before. For instance, there's a part in the game where um, the telephone is ringing, and even if you chose in the game to answer the phone. You can't because the phone is supposed to be on the ground next to your wheelchair, out of the field of view of your VR headset. Hmm. Um, so it, it um, you, he really felt the frustration of reaching for this thing he couldn't hmm. actually wow. grab. And then at a different point in the game, um, the developers actually simulated VR sickness hmm. to um, help um, simulate a panic attack that the character was having. Wow. Um, these are sort of interesting elements that make the game feel more immersive and therefore more, um, um, I guess, empathy-inducing. But um, I don't know if we've we've heard of that being used before. No. I think that's a really interesting sort of um, combination, right? Because you always talk about the sickness in VR, and I think that's what the developers sort of talked they about. They made it a boon here. Yeah, like yeah. he actually used it to make you feel the panic attacks, and that was amazing. Um I don't know. I feel like there's a lot that's happening with it and in the gaming sphere as well. But I think it'll be interesting to see if people actually start to change with it. You know, uh, I think that can only happen over a period of time to see how people actually react based on that. Um, but it's a great start. Yeah. And the, the, the part you're talking about specifically where um, it's, Dana, it's one, one of these like vignettes where they're trying to not uh, simulate a, a panic attack so much, I think, but um, the gender dysphoria, show, mm. you know, this, this disassociation from what she feels on the inside and what mm-hmm. she looks like on the outside. Um, and it, they, they don't go into really much detail about how they do it. But Aaron, you know, talks about this like subtle, weird feeling and that's, you know, it's that it that, was intentional. It wasn't yeah. an accident. And that is one of the most powerful things that I think I've heard of. Like, we, we, we've talked a lot, um, I think, over the last couple of months and probably a couple of years about the potential for VR to tell stories or create empathy and do all of these things and change the way we yeah. deliver narrative. And honestly, um, not that the stuff that the New York Times is doing is bad, but it seems to be very traditional in the way it delivers information, the way it delivers a narrative, even a lot of other VR games that, you know, might try to do this empathy thing. This is a uniquely 
virtual reality trick mm. to deliver a very uh, specific effect in the narrative that um, I really wonder what else we can do. Like, what else is there to mine? Yeah. I think they're also doing a lot with um, 3D audio in that and using that as a tool, just using sounds to create certain feelings, which sometimes even visuals mm -hmm. don't, right? So, yeah, I think they're actually playing with a lot of things within VR to sort of enhance this sort of experience of being in someone else's shoes. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm excited to see where this is going. It's an interesting pr uh, progression, especially when you consider where we started with news outlets using VR. I think yeah. it's a great start to at least put people in the scene that yeah. you're talking about. But I think what we're seeing now is a justification for how VR can really add to the experience hmm. in a way that other mediums, over other mediums, um, why you might experience this in VR as opposed to a tradi traditional laptop game or a PC yeah, game, let's say. that's really true. I think it, yeah, you're right. I think it makes VR even necessary in certain experiences, yeah. which it wasn't earlier. And I mean, I think in general, when Engadget covers VR, we've had to think critically, um, and we've had this discussion, you and I, Terrence, we can't just put up headlines that say such and such is available in VR. We have to think critically about whether VR adds to the experience or what it adds to the experience. I can't wait for the commenters, by the way, to point out a recent headline <laughs> where we do that. It's going to be great. Yep. Yeah, it's coming. <laughs> but I think this is... Um, we love you guys. I think this game, The Circle, definitely um, makes the case for it. I think the UN example you gave makes a case for it. Yeah. So are, are, are people finally starting to figure out, do you think, how to use VR as a medium to tell a story? Because uh, one of the other things uh, that I always came up against in a lot of the early like sort of experiments with VR over the last couple of years, I shouldn't say early experiments with VR, but once it's kind of started to go mainstream and um, there were like branded experiences to like go along with movies and stuff and these like VR short films that sure they were interesting, uh, but it became really hard to tell a narrative um, visually when the creator doesn't have control over the camera angle. Right. And Mona, was it you who wrote at some point about um, how if you are in this VR experience and you can keep looking around, that you yourself might be slowing down the narrative because you've just stopped to kind of sniff the roses? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, but... That um, I think you wrote about the challenges of keeping a narrative going. Yeah, I think people are still figuring it out. I don't think they have um, yet, which is why I think they sort of go with a companion piece for a movie because it's like somewhat of the narrative is already there for them to toy around with. Um, and honestly, it's not... I don't think people have still figured out the visuals and how it all comes together and all the other sort of tools you need to make it work. Um, because if you actually watch an experience that isn't done well, there's nothing more boring than having that headset on and having to sit through seven minutes of like, what is going on? And you can see all the flaws in it. Um, so I think they have a long way to go, but I think they're starting to figure it out a lot better now. Yeah. Is this sort of like interactivity and you know game-like structure sort of essential, do you think, to VR as an narrative? as a tool for creating art and narratives? I think they're different applications. Um, that's, that's the way I see it. I think the way that journalism's using it is completely different. And there's, there's a strong story there. And they are sort of doing a really good job of not having, you know, they just sort of rely on the truth of what the situation is. And they kind of let you walk through it yourself. But then there's the gaming aspect, which works really well. So I think it's sort of two different applications for sure. 
I am kind of I I'm, I'm personally super excited, I guess is the word I'd use to play the circle. <laughs> I mean, this is yeah. he, so this is one of the weird things um I think I found at least about uh VR and I don't know if either of you ha- have had the same experiences. Every time I hear about one of these like really like dark I, and in, this is, to be clear, a very dark game, mm-hmm. if we yeah. can call it that. Um, experiences in VR where it puts you in the shoes of somebody else and it tries to build empathy. I'm 100% on board. I'm like, I need to do this. I want to experience this. I want to know what this is like. I have the polar opposite reaction most of the time <laughs> to like when it comes to like a movie. Hmm. Like, that seems really dark. Like, I really have to brace myself well, for this. It's like, so funny like, you should say that. And we've written about this, too, is, is gaming as an art form is maturing and is starting to become taken more seriously yeah. the way film struggled to become taken more, struggled to be taken more seriously. And I think that's why we're seeing more games, and games in general, but VR experiences, too, that have some sort of humanitarian or social justice bent to it. And um, I think that's why also we're more... Um, comfortable with these games or we've come to expect them but it's interesting that with movies which is the more mature art form and long-standing art form you're like meh <laughs> yeah uh i'm I, I don't know what it is like do, do you have the same draw to these experiences i think i have it to both okay. uh, which is why i'm actually surprised to hear that you would rather experience something darker in vr than the movies it's, that's what you said right yeah more or less <laughs> i mean here here's here here's what i'll say is it's not that I don't want to watch the movies usually. Um, it's not like when somebody's like, this is like a really serious, dark, important film that I'm like, I don't want to watch that. I'd rather go watch, insert latest Marvel mayhem here. <laughs> of course you would. <laughs> um, it's more that I feel like I have to like sort of gear myself up for it more. Hmm. Um, and I think it it might partially just be the novelty of VR uh, that might be a big driver of it. It's just like, I want to experience mm. a, a virtual reality. Mm. This is a unique experience. Whereas watching a super depressing movie for two and a half hours on my couch is not a unique experience. That's actually really interesting. So I wonder if if you would feel the same way when the novelty wears off. Because I think that's a pretty solid point. Like maybe that's why you're more excited about it. Um, because it's new and it feels different, right? Um, no, I, I, I don't know. I'm just as not excited, but enthusiastic to sort of experience something dark. <laughs> uh, but I am. I kind of go both ways with VR and film. Um, and you're weird for saying that. Yeah. <laughs> Dana, do you also like just dark, depressing things? Um, sometimes. <laughs> this is what we established on the last episode, right? <laughs> is that we just... We're, we are the dark, dark people. Yeah, we're the yeah. dark, miserable tech podcast. I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not. I'm not saying you are. I'm saying the podcast in general, largely because I play host and I'm probably, uh, as somebody knows, pointed out know, to me last week, a dark, miserable human. I'm being. not a gamer, so I mean, my preferences for games really are irrelevant to everyone because I'm not a gamer. But I know that as a reader and an editor. Um, I prefer reading about games like that. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean um, they'd be my favorite to play, but um, these are the kind of, you know, if we're going to write thoughtfully about gaming, we should be starting with pieces, with yeah. games like this and experiences like this. Um, 
and before we wrap up in that vein, I do. I'm I'm going to drop a link to this in the comments. Uh, on the description for this anyway, even though it really has nothing to do with anything, just because I would like people to read it. Uh, Aaron also wrote an excellent piece called uh, uh, about that dragon cancer, which was a game mm. about um, losing a child to cancer. Mm-hmm. And oh, yeah. It is right. one of those super dark pieces, uh, super dark game, super dark piece. Uh, it's one of my favorite uh, gaming-oriented things that we've ever done. Um, I think it's definitely worth worth reading and looking at. Um, if you want, if you want a game that builds empathy, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that's as good a place as any to leave it. Um, Mona, where can the fine people find you on the internet? Um, just on email. I hate Twitter, so don't look for me there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Dana, where can they find you? Um, Mona's lying. She sometimes faves my tweets. <laughs> I do secretly. <laughs> yeah. Um, but she doesn't tweet herself. She never. just faves other people's tweets. Mm-hmm. Um, I am Dana Wolman on Twitter. It's my full name, no space. And um, I tweet about tech only some of the time. Mm. Just be warned. Uh, I am at Terrence O'Brien. Lots of E's, no A's. I almost never tweet about tech. Uh, most of my tweets at this moment are about politics. So if don't follow me if you're not looking to hear me <laughs> complain about Donald Trump. Um, but as always, uh, thank you guys for joining us, joining me. Thank you out there for listening and watching. Um, please send us your feedback, your comments, questions, complaints, whatever it is. We want to hear them. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at Engadget or at Engadget Podcast. We have a specific podcast account, which I keep forgetting about. Uh, you can also email us at uh, podcast at Engadget. Uh, make sure to subscribe to us on iTunes, your podcast app of choice. Rate us on there because the more you rate us, the more people will find us. And we want people to listen to us. That's why we do this. Uh, but before I go, I want to leave you with the comment of the week, which comes from Beta Tester. Fart, the new fuel. Okay. It's the best I got. <laughs> That's good to know. Thanks. 